All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and today we're looking at verses 10 through 16. Let me read those verses. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this. I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves... Let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Well, this morning we're continuing our study in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And uh, here Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. And he's addressing a number of relationship issues. Uh, these are new Christians, relatively new Christians, and like all of us, they're wrestling with relationships. One of the most challenging, complex, difficult areas of life is, can be relationships, especially close relationships. And so last, uh, actually two Sundays ago, if you'll remember, we studied the first part of 1 Corinthians 7, and, and we looked at what Paul had to say about the whole issue of sexuality and how our faith uh, causes us to, to relate to that. Uh, so if that's a a topic you'd love to hear about and you weren't here, you can go listen to that online. Uh, Next Sunday, we'll be looking at the whole issue of singleness. If you're single, if you're unmarried, how does your faith intersect with that? What what does it mean to be a Christian unmarried person, a Christian single person? And so we're going to look at what Paul has to say about that next Sunday. But here in verses 10 to 16, we look at the whole issue of divorce and our Christian understanding of it. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I uh, am approaching this sermon with a sense of trepidation, um, even more so than the sense of trepidation I felt when I preached about sex two weeks ago, Uh, because, obviously, we all have been impacted by divorce. We've all been affected by it personally, most likely everyone here, whether it's someone close to us who's been through a divorce, uh, and, and we've seen the effects of that. Uh, and maybe as our child, maybe as our parents or a best friend, and, and we were within the blast radius of that event, and we've been affected by it. Or whether you've gone through a divorce yourself, or divorces, or, or maybe you're in the process now, or maybe you've just came out of it within the last year, or something like that. You, you know that this is not just an academic topic. This is very personal, it's very painful, uh, nobody gets married intending to go through divorce, and yet it happens. And so it, there's usually some sense of failure, shame, grief, embarrassment around this topic as well. And so maybe even as I'm saying that word over and over, you just can kind of feel your, your whole self tensing up and just the shields going up and, you know, like, why, why did I come this Sunday? And, and you know, all of those thoughts and feelings... And I just want to say, I, I think we all sense that, and we all are aware of that. Um, 
The other reason, though, that I feel a sense of trepidation in, in preaching this, too, is, is the other side of it, which is God takes marriage very seriously. You know, Marriage is more about God even than it is about us. And, and, and so I also don't want us to, because it's a difficult issue, shy away from the truth and pull punches because freedom is only found in the truth. Freedom is only found in Christ. And so unless we look at what God's word has to say, we'll stay in pain or, or we'll find solutions to, to pain that, that really aren't there, uh, long-term solutions that God has for us. And so there's a part of me too that, that doesn't want to skip out on anything God's word has to say. So this is a challenging topic. So with that being said, and with God's help and with the Holy Spirit's help, uh, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 to 16. And uh, I'm going to break up this sermon into two parts. The first part, we're going to look at verses 10 to 11, where God gives what I'm going to call general, where Paul gives general teaching about divorce, sort of the general principles relating to how we should view divorce, but especially as Christians married to Christians. And I think that's the specific situation he's looking at, but he's drawing some general principles. And that's verses 10 and 11, and we're going to spend the bulk of our time there. And then we'll look at verses 12 to 16. We'll spend a little less time there, and that's where Paul's going to address the specific situation of a Christian married to a non-Christian, of a person who is a follower of Jesus Christ married to someone who does not believe Jesus is the Son of God, who does not trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. And, and many of you find, have found yourself in that situation. What, what do you do as a Christian in that circumstance? So let's look at the first one first. Paul's general teaching, the Bible's general teaching on divorce and by extension remarriage. And it's right there in verses 10 to 11. Let me read them again. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord, a wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. The basic biblical teaching about divorce is don't divorce. Don't divorce. That's the summary. It, stay married. Paul says if you're a wife... Don't separate from your husband. And when it says separate there in verse 10, that means divorce. Not, you know, we use the word separate sometimes to describe living apart for a season because you're trying to just get some space. But you're not divorcing, you're just separating. That, that's not what Paul means. The word separate there means to, to be divorced. Or else, he says, be, uh, be reconciled or remain unmarried. And a husband must not divorce his wife. And then we read that and we say, okay, wow, that's, that's pretty direct. Uh, and I imagine questions start coming up in your mind. Is that always the case? Is there never, ever, ever circumstances where, where divorce is sort of permissible by God? Are, are, are there some situations where it's okay? And, and why, is, why does Paul say, if you get divorced, don't get divorced, but if you do, if you do, but I think you said don't, but if you do, stay unmarried or be reconciled. And how do we make sense of this? And, you know, if this is difficult for us get our heads around in our society and in our sort of no-fault divorce culture in which we live, it would have been even more difficult for Greco-Roman culture because we know historically that Greco-Roman culture was even more 
more permissive when it came to divorce. It, it was even easier to do. It was even more commonplace in Greco-Roman society. So, so here's Paul writing to these Corinthians, and if his words seemed shocking and stark to us, they would have seemed really shocking and stark to these Corinthian people for, for whom divorce was really almost expected. It, it was just assumed that this would happen normally in the course of a marriage in that kind of culture, in that circumstance. So how do we make sense of this? Well, there's a little clue here that, that helped me once I got my, sort of came in my radar. Look at back at verse 10 to help us understand this teaching on divorce. He says in verse 10, to the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. What does that mean? Not I, but the Lord. What, what that means is that what Paul is saying is, what I'm about to tell you about divorce is actually just summarizing what Jesus said about divorce. So I, I'm telling you the teaching of Jesus. So what you have here in verses 10 and 11, and I think one of the reasons why it's so condensed, is because Paul is giving us a kind of bullet point summary of Jesus' teaching on this topic. Jesus taught about divorce. And so, it's, so it's, it's not that Paul's disagreeing with what he's about to say, but he's, he's saying, look, this is what Jesus himself taught. So it will help us to go back and understand what Jesus taught. And I think Jesus' teaching helps us understand what Paul is summarizing here. So what I want to do is have you bookmark 1 Corinthians 7. Get a pencil or you know, grab your neighbor's bulletin or whatever. Put something there in 1 Corinthians 7. Go back to Matthew chapter 19 in the Gospels. Matthew 19, which is on page 975. Jesus taught on divorce in a number of places in the Gospels. Matthew 19 is the fullest, longest teaching of Jesus on divorce. And so I thought it would be helpful for us to look at that one in particular, though we could have looked at a number of texts. But if you look at Matthew chapter 19, here's Jesus' teaching on divorce, of which I'm arguing the 1 Corinthians 7 is a kind of bullet point summary in a lot of ways. So what did Jesus teach about divorce? What did he have to say? Well, look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So here come the Pharisees again, Jesus' perennial opponents, and uh, they're always trying to trip him up. They want to trip him up, they want to trick him, they want to catch him, they want to get him in a sound bite and play it on the news and ruin his reputation. And so they go, I know what we'll do. Let's throw a hot potato at him. Divorce. Because divorce was actually a hot potato in Jewish society, too. It seems like it's always a hot potato. You know, it, it was a big, it's a big issue today. It was a big issue in Corinth. It was an issue in Jewish society. And, and it was a debate among the Pharisees. And, and the debate was, when is it okay to divorce your wife? And there were some Pharisees who were like, if she burns the eggs, you can divorce your wife. And there were other Pharisees who were like, no, it's got to be more serious than that. And there were huge rabbinical discussions back and forth on when it was okay and, and so they come to Jesus, and they're like, all right, this is how we'll get him. We'll throw him the hot potato and see what he does with it. And so they toss it to him. When's it okay to divorce your wife, Jesus? Pretending like they want him to weigh in, but really trying to trip him up. But Jen, Jesus is such a ninja. Good luck tripping him up in an argument. He just, you know, I mean, look, look at what he does here. It's so, it's genius. He's awesome. Verses 4 to 6. Haven't you read, he replied. I love that. Haven't you read? Like, he's talking to the Pharisees, the Bible experts. Hey, have you guys ever read um, the Bible? You know? It's cool. You should read the Bible, Pharisees. Haven't you read? 
he replied, that at the beginning the creator, quote, Genesis 1, made them male and female, and said, quote, Genesis 2, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So Jesus takes them back to the Bible. He takes them back to the beginning of the Bible. And he wants to take them back to marriage. And this is so important. We'll never understand the Bible's teaching on divorce if we don't first understand the Bible's teaching on marriage. You've got to get your head around what marriage is supposed to be. Otherwise, the whole divorce thing just goes off the rails, and it won't make sense. And you just start looking at the Bible like these Pharisees. You're looking for loopholes, looking for clauses to be able to do what you really want to do. You've got to start with saying, what is marriage? What is that thing? And here Jesus takes them back to the beginning. And what do we see that he says? First of all, God created marriage. Marriage is an invention from the Lord. It's not something people created. Interestingly, you look at all human societies and you find marriage between man and woman in all societies because God hardwired this into us from the very beginning. This is how he created us. You see that marriage is between a male and a female. You see that marriage is a a profound bonding of two people. Again, the the man will leave his father and mother, verse 5, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh one person. That marriage is such a profound unity, it's such a binding covenant, that it's as if there's just one person now, as if. And, and certainly that there's a, a sense in which that's talking about sexuality within marriage, and we talked about this two weeks ago, how sex is the kind of physical enactment of the reality of being unified in marriage, but it's more than that, it's emotional unity, it's the, the mind, the body, the life, your money, your time. I mean, you're, just, you're one person. It's like God looks down and he sees one. There's one flesh before him. <clears throat> marriage is not a civil union, merely. Marriage is not simply uh, a, a kind of state-sanctioned cohabitation. Marriage is something that God created between a man and a woman and that, that, that is a profound spiritual fusing of lives such that the two have become one. Uh, and, and in fact, we, we could even take it a step further and say that, that the reason God made marriage this way was ultimately to teach us about himself. You, you know, we, we think about marriage and divorce and we start looking at ourselves and thinking about our lives. And you've got to realize, marriage is not even primarily for us. It's primarily for God. It's to show us what a relationship with God is really supposed to look like. So whether you're a single person or a married person or whoever you are, we're all supposed to look at marriage and go, oh, that's how God wants to be with us. That's why marriage exists, to give us a living parable, to see that's the kind of closeness and trust and love and intimacy and respect and honor that God wants with his people. So it's a beautiful thing. So that's why I say marriage is more about God even than it is about my personal happiness or anything else. So it's a sacred thing. It's a powerful thing. It's a profoundly unifying reality given to humanity by God. And therefore, Jesus then gets back to the question of divorce, verse 6. They are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. 
So don't divorce. That's I, I, what I take then, if you kind of keep a finger here in Matthew now, flip back to 1 Corinthians 7. This is what Paul is summarizing. This is kind of his first bullet point. I give this command. A, man must, a wife must not separate from her husband. A husband must not divorce his wife. Why? Why would you just say that, Paul? Because of what marriage is. This profound unity between two people that God has given, that God sees as one. So it doesn't make any sense to violate that or to break it. But now notice Paul goes on to say, verse 11, if she does divorce, if she does, then she must remain unmarried. Why, now why would Paul say if she does? Didn't he just say don't? And now he's like, but if it does happen. I mean, is he, is he talking out of both sides of his mouth? Well, again, keep your bookmark here in 1 Corinthians. Go back to Matthew. And it seems like Jesus addressed this as well in his own teaching. The fact that, yes, that's the ideal, we're not supposed to divorce, and yet it happens. And yet there are situations where the, we just look at it humanly and we're like, I can't see how that marriage can or should or would stay together. And so, so the Pharisees threw that at Jesus too. Go back to Matthew chapter 19, verse 7. So, so they, they're like, oh, you're going to throw scripture at us, Jesus? Well, we're going to throw some scripture at you. We can play the scripture game. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. Uh-huh. Explain that one, Jesus. You got your simplistic little don't divorce law. What, what about, and this, he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 24 here from the Old Testament, where Moses says if you're going to divorce your wife, give her a certificate of divorce. It says that in the Bible. So it seems like Moses said it was okay to divorce. So what, how do you figure that together? But again, they're fighting with Jesus the ninja. And they get owned Jesus says in verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. It was not this way from the beginning. Now this thing with Moses, this isn't a loophole. This is a concession for hard-hearted people who won't listen to God's word. And in fact, if you go back to Deuteronomy 24, we're not going to take time to do it, but it's interesting. Look at that whole section about giving someone a certificate of divorce, that law is primarily there to protect women. That's what I would argue. You go back to that, and in a patriarchal culture where, where women could be sort of shuffled around and a guy could divorce his wife, and then, oh, what am I going to do? And some other guy marries her, and then he divorces her, and she's like, what am I going to do? And this guy's like, all right, I'll take you back. You know? and, and so you, know, you get women just kind of not having the same kind of rights and standing in society as women have today. And, and so this, this idea of a certificate of divorce protects the woman protects her reputation in the society, protects her from just being shuffled around like that in the same way. So in other words, th- this whole thing they quote that, at Jesus, they've totally misused it. They're using it as an excuse to get divorced. And he's like, you guys, you picked the wrong example. That whole example's there because you're hard-hearted. And God had to intervene in your broken Israelite society. That's why the law is there. But it was not that way from the beginning. And so I, I wonder, I don't know, but I kind of wonder if when Paul, going back to 1 Corinthians 7, keep your bookmark in Matthew, we're going to flip-flop back. But when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 11, but if she does, it, it's the same kind of recognition that still we understand that divorce happens even despite the ideal. But if she does, then what? She must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. What? Wow, 
Where does that come from? What do you mean remain unmarried or be reconciled? Well, where, where does Paul get that? He gets it from Jesus. Go back to Matthew 24, 19 rather, Matthew 19. Jesus taught that as well. Okay, here we are in Matthew 19, 9. And this is the remarriage part. Jesus said, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, except for adultery or sexual immorality, anyone who divorces his wife, not counting that reason, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Do you get that? Okay, so let's break it down. Just think, listen to the logic. So Jesus is saying, if I'm married to my wife and I divorce her for any reason besides immorality, and I divorce my wife, and I go and marry another woman, I've committed adultery. What? (laughs) I understand that if I'm with my wife and, and I were to have an affair, that's adultery. But if I'm divorced from her and I'm no longer married to her, how can I possibly commit adultery on someone I'm not married to? Doesn't it just seem strange? But that's what he says. If, if you divorce and marry another, you're not committing adultery. He just look at that and you're like, what is the logic behind that? I don't understand it. Well, the logic is back in verse 5. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and he'll be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. You're still one flesh. In other words, marriage is such a profoundly unifying thing that even if legally, culturally, you have the piece of paper that lets you separate, the reality is that even if you you have that legally, if you marry someone else, you're still one flesh. And so there's a kind of adultery that is happening there. Does that just blow you away? I'm blown away by that. I'm like, whoa. I I just don't think of the marriage commitment as that deep. You know, we think of marriage as something that we choose. We choose to marry, we choose not to be married. And we forget that God is the one over the whole thing. And so God is looking down saying, what? Just because you think you're done, I I think I made you one flesh. And so to to divorce and to remarry is a kind of adultery. And uh, and there is an exception there. And now even the, I think that even makes the exception clause make sense. Look at verse 9 except for marital unfaithfulness. Well, that makes sense now, because now if, if there's a divorce that happens over marital unfaithfulness, well, then I go marry someone else. I'm not committing adultery because that other person already committed adultery. And so that's why the marriage was ruptured. The fundamental one fleshness was broken through, through the affair. But still, that's pretty intense, huh? Like, wow, that's a really high view of marriage. That's how the disciples responded. Look at verse 10. The disciple said, whew, if this is, it doesn't say whew in Greek, I just kind (laughs) of, my dramatic side coming out. If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Wow, if it's that intense and that committed and that permanent, you shouldn't even get married. And Jesus basically says in verses 11 to 12, yeah, actually, yeah, you shouldn't get married if, if you can handle that. We'll talk about that next week. But really, this is incredibly strong teaching. So now you go back to 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 to 11, and we see where Paul is coming from. He's giving a bullet point summary of the teaching of Jesus. Don't divorce, but we understand that it happens. But even if it does happen, 
Remain unmarried or else be reconciled to your husband. Why? Because remarriage is a, is a kind of uh, adultery in a sense, unless, of course, there was already a, an adultery that took place. And so, so I do think there are some circumstances where the Bible permits people to divorce and the Bible permits people to remarry, including uh, unfaithfulness in marriage. Or, or if you are divorced and your spouse remarries, I, I think you're free to remarry. But still, the main point is to honor marriage. Let's just take a minute just to apply this to ourselves before we move on and look at the other situation in verses 12 to 16 of a Christian married to a non-Christian. So so let me apply this three ways. First of all, to all the married people here. If you're here this morning and you're married, this is the situation I find myself in. You know, what, what, what if you're married this morning? And answer number one is don't divorce. Don't divorce, right? In fact, fight against it with everything you can not to end up in divorce. And, and, and there's a positive side to that too, which is you could put it more positively. Fight for your marriage, cultivate your marriage, strengthen your marriage, pour energy into your marriage, love your spouse, serve your spouse, do everything you can to make it work. If it's going the wrong way, get drastic. Seek help, seek counseling, come to the church, do whatever you can to arrest that that decay in marriage and to keep working on your marriage. If you've gotten lazy and tired in your marriage, man, wake up and give yourself to your spouse. If you're a married person, then next to your relationship with the Lord, your relationship with your spouse is just the highest priority you have. And so pour yourself into it. You know, don't be like one of those Christian married couples that they're married, but their relationship's kind of, you know. But they're like, well, we're not divorcing though, the Bible says good, but we're called to more than just not divorce. We're called to a vibrant relationship with our spouses that everybody can look at, whether you're single and married, and not see a perfect marriage, but say, you know, I see Christ in the church in that marriage. We need to strive toward that. That takes two people. It takes radical commitment. But, but I want to tell you something. I believe, this is a firm belief I have based upon empirical evidence, that if two people, both people, will say, I will do whatever it takes to make this marriage work, God can restore any marriage. I believe it. I've seen it. It's true. Because God's grace is greater than our sin. But that's, sometimes that takes radical steps. And it can be really intense. But it's worth it. So go for it. Strive for that to the extent that it is in your power. For those of you, second situation, who find yourselves divorced but not remarried. Those of you who are still single but you're divorced. Um, what, what does God's word say to you? And, and I guess I would say the first thing it says is don't rush into getting remarried. Even if your divorce was biblically permissible, just chill. So we'll talk about that more next Sunday. In fact, if you're divorced and you're single or if you're just single, please come back next Sunday. Because that's where we're going to dig into that whole issue. And Paul has so much helpful stuff to say. Just so helpful. And we're going to look at that next week. So encouraging. So useful. But, but I would say that's the first one. Is don't be rushing into a marriage. Uh, remarriage. Don't, don't make the rebound mistake. Of thinking, well, I've got to have a guy. I've got to have a gal. Otherwise, I'm not going to be happy. No, 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 no. Just grow close to the Lord. I've heard it said as a rule of thumb. Sort of like after you lose someone and they die. Same thing if, if you have a divorce, you know. Don't, don't look at any new relationship for at least a year, 
Right? I had one divorced person tell me, you know, I think it's five years. Because sometimes it just takes that long to work through everything that happened and everything that led up to that. You know, don't fall into the, the, the kind of bitter divorcee trap of just being like, ah, is that, that jerk. You know, 98% them, 2% me. And the 2% that I did, you know, well, I, I didn't mean to. And, you know, but they're, they're really the problem. You know, even if you go through divorce, like, just take the time to search your heart and to say, Lord, search me. Lord, show me. Anytime we go through a profound failure or grief or pain in our lives, it's always a fantastic opportunity to grow in the Lord. And so don't waste your divorce by rushing off to a new relationship or blaming the other person. Don't waste your divorce. Take advantage of that brokenness and that pain and time to just keep seeking the Lord and saying, Lord, Lord, I want to know you. And, and uh, it just, it's a wonderful opportunity. And let the Lord just do a work in your life. Could it be even, I want you to consider this, could it be that God has allowed your divorce to happen because he loves you so much that he's willing to let you go through pain to get your attention? God is after you. God is after you. And sometimes, like a good parent, he has to let us fall down until we're finally ready with our bloody knees and our bloody elbows to lift up our hands and say, Dad, help. And the Lord does that. Third situation, if you're remarried, maybe you find yourself in a position where you're a Christian, you've been divorced, you're remarried, and maybe you look back on your, your marriage and you say, you know, I... It wasn't kind of a biblical grounds. There was no affair taking place there. It was just one of those all kinds of problems in the marriage. And I got divorced and I got remarried. What do I do now? And I guess I would say two things at least. One is stay married. Okay, the past is past. Stay married. And now you're in category one. Work on your new marriage. Make it work. Let God use it. And then I would say the second thing is, though, just to take seriously God's word. And that might just be you and the Lord getting together and saying, you know, Lord, I've never really seriously wrestled with what your word says about remarriage. And, and Lord, as I look at my, my remarriage, I realize maybe it was against your will. But, Lord, forgive me, restore me, use me. That's the great thing about the Lord. If you come to the Lord with, with real repentance, man, he forgives and he restores and he gives new life. That's his speciality, is to take broken, ruined people for all kinds of reasons who come humbly to him and to save and restore. That is his expertise, is to have mercy on sinners who seek him in all kinds of ways. And so come to the Lord and seek him out and let God do a new work in your life. God does that. You guys doing okay? Okay, let's look at the last one. We'll, we'll go quicker on this one. The second situation, a Christian married to a non-Christian. I'm in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 16. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 16. So we've looked at the general teaching on marriage. I had a guy come up to me after the first service. He goes, I think I get it. He goes, the main message is, marriage is sacred, don't get divorced. But the second message is, if, if, if it does happen for whatever reason, seek God and, and he'll forgive you and restore you. I was like, yeah, that, that's it. So that's the whole sermon. <laughs> so don't leave. I got more to say. But still, like that's the whole, 
I'm like, yeah, like you got it. I said, you got it. You, you got the whole story. That's kind of it in a nutshell. But let's look at this situation. Because some of you find yourself in this situation, so I think it's important to look at this too, of being married to uh, a Christian, married to a non-Christian. Verse 12, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. I, not the Lord. Why does Paul say that? He says that because what he's about to teach us wasn't explicitly taught by Jesus. That's all that means. Like Jesus didn't teach about this. Because remember, Jesus was teaching to Jews. And by and large, they, they believed. But now Paul is speaking to a situation where you have a believer married to people who don't believe in Christ at all. Remember, Paul came to Corinth. Remember this? We talked about this in the beginning of our first, study, first Corinthians study. Comes to Corinth, sp- spends a couple of weeks there preaching, teaching. People are being saved. People are coming to faith in Jesus. And then he leaves, and now he writes this letter about four or five years later. So these are brand new baby Christians. When he first came to Corinth... All these people, you know, they, they, they had faith. It's just that they worshiped Zeus and they worshiped Poseidon and they worshiped Athena and they uh, practiced magic and sorcery and superstition. And here comes Paul preaching about Jesus and suddenly some of these people who worshiped all these other pagan things are turning to Jesus. It was awesome. Except that sometimes their spouse wasn't turning to Jesus. So now imagine you're a Christian. You're in Corinth and you're coming home at night. It's time to say grace at dinner. And you're, you know, you're eating fish, and your husband insists on praying to Poseidon. <laughs> what do you do with that? And you go into your, your fireplace to cook your meal, and over the fire is a little altar to Zeus. And, and there's magical incantations that are nailed to the door of your house to protect it against evil spirits. So now you're a Christian, and you're married to a flaming pagan. What do you do with that? And you can see that these Christians would be like, maybe I shouldn't be here. This is probably dragging me down spiritually. This isn't contaminating me. You know, didn't Paul just say back in chapter 6 that, that uh, Christians should avoid uh, making use of prostitution because you're uniting your body and your life with someone who doesn't know the Lord? Isn't that what I'm doing every day in my marriage? I, I'm uniting my life and my body with someone who worships pagan idols? Like, wow, I, this is bad. Maybe I should just get divorced here. This is not good for my spiritual life. And what does Paul say? Verse 12. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, even though the the husband's become a Christian and he has a totally different religion, if the wife's willing to put up with it, don't divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer, and he's willing to live with her, she's willing to put up with her new Christian thing, don't divorce Stay married. Again, the principle, don't divorce if you can help it. Stay married. Even if you're married to the the head of the Zeus cult in town. Like, oh, that's so spiritually fouled up. Aren't I corrupted? Aren't I contaminated by this unbelief of this other person? No. Actually, it's just the opposite. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What in the world? This passage has so many challenging things to understand. What does that mean, my wife has been sanctified by me? I, I, don't, I think what it doesn't mean, what it doesn't mean is that, is that my spouse who doesn't believe is automatically saved because I believe. I don't think it means that. But I think, again, it's this idea of 
to use a kind of Old Testament concept, ritual purity, ritual cleanliness. You know, the Jews in the Old Testament had to keep themselves ritually pure. And, and, and so they didn't eat pork and they didn't touch dead bodies and things like that because that would contaminate them ritually. And so there's this idea of contamination that gets carried forward. And, and they would think, am I contaminated by being with this person? No, 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 no. You're actually affecting them. They're in a sense kind of sanctified. It, it's okay for you to be with them. I, I think that's the point of it. Uh, the, one image I had in my mind is it's like a house. And you're inside the house of salvation and your spouse is outside the house of salvation, but they're on the front porch. And the door is wide open, and the windows are open, and you're communicating, but you're always saying, come on, you need to come to the Lord, come into the house. And they're not 100 miles away, they've chosen, they're willing to stay with you and live with you, but they're on terms of salvation, they're kind of on the porch. And so they're, they're sort of covered by the gospel, they're covered by just the, the life of the church, they're hearing the gospel. I mean, your, your poor unbelieving spouse, they don't even realize they're a mission field. And then I realize you're the missionary. Or maybe they do. <laughs> you know, some of you here are um, maybe here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, but your spouse is. And you're trying to be patient with their religion and understand it and all that. And, you know, I just want you to know, like, come on in the house. Come to Christ. We're praying for you. There are people here who could stand up and tell you their faith story, which was my spouse got saved. I was really upset about it. But then I started going to church, and then I found all these Christians were praying for me. It really irritated me. And then God worked in my life, and it was 10 years later. And so we, we, we love you, and, and that's what's going on here. We're praying for spouses to come to know the Lord. So, so if you're a Christian wife or a Christian husband, and you're married to someone who doesn't know Jesus, don't feel like a second-class citizen in the church. I think that's sometimes how it's easy to feel. You know, you come to church, and there's all the happy Christian couples walking up the stairs with their perfect, no-problem marriages, and, uh, right? Uh, and, and there they go up the stairs, and you just think, oh, I wish my spouse was here. And, and you feel kind of like a loser, or like a failure, or like kind of a second-class citizen in the church. You don't need to feel that way. And, and we shouldn't treat each other that way. Because we're all under the umbrella of God's grace in the body of Christ. So don't feel defiled. Don't feel dirty. Now, verse 15, just to move on and finish this. But in verse 15, it says, If the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. So this is like a little exception clause. Hey, if, if your spouse is willing to stay with you, stay married, even if they're not a Christian. Now, if they want to leave because they just can't put up with your Christianity among other issues, then let them go. Just let them go. But otherwise, try to stay married. Because number one, you're not being contaminated. You're covering them in some sense. Number two, verse 15, God's called us to live in peace, which I think is a further argument for why to stay married. It's, it's continue to live in harmony. We're called to live together and to be united. And so if your unbelieving spouse wants to stay, let them stay. Number three, verse 16, a third reason to stay married to your unbelieving spouse. How do you know, wife, whether or not you'll save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether or not you'll save your wife? You don't know if they'll be converted. You go, oh, not my spouse. That's ridiculous. You know, I know God saves people, but that's like, that, that's a pipe dream. God couldn't save that person. Really? 
Isn't that our whole religion as Christians? That we, we, we're like the people who hope in the ridiculous long shot because we believe in the power of the gospel. I mean, you know, to, to, to write somebody off as hopeless is, is like one of the most unchristian things to do because it's kind of like saying Jesus can't save that person. They're too far gone. The blood of Christ can't save them. The blood of Christ is not that powerful. We don't believe that, you know? We, we're the people who believe anyone can be saved. We're the people who believe that people like the Apostle Paul could be saved. That, that Jesus-hating terrorists like the Apostle Paul could be saved and could write a letter that we would all read here this morning. We, we believe in the power of the gospel. And, and so we believe that God can change anybody. And so we pray for people. We don't write people off. We keep praying. And, and they turn us down and they rebuff us. And we're like, okay, but I'm still going to pray for you. Because I believe in the power of the gospel. We've experienced the power of the gospel, haven't we? In our own lives. I mean, the fact that we're Christians, the fact that we're following Jesus is not because we're better. It's an amazing miracle that God has saved us. And so, so that belief in God's grace is just over everything that we do. Because at the end of the day, we who know Jesus have participated in the greatest marriage reconciliation story in the history of the world. We who are followers of Jesus have experienced the greatest marriage reconciliation story in the history of the world. We we were part of the ugliest divorce that ever took place, our divorcing God. I don't don't know who here's got the ugliest divorce story. If we had a contest, who's got the ugliest, bloodiest, nastiest divorce story? Someone's like, oh, I I got a contestant, you know. And we, we all went in the back room and shared stories. And we said, yeah, that's the worst one. And someone came out here and said, I'm going to tell you my story. And they told us just a terrible, painful, broken story of divorce and betrayal. W- whatever that story is, it would pale in comparison to the story of humanity's rejection of God. Humanity's divorce of God. Humanity's serial adultery toward God. Humanity's constant addictions that have idols that have taken them away from God. It's the one divorce story in the history of the world where we actually were 100% at fault and God was 0% at fault. And to think that God responded to our serial adultery, serial betrayal, serial addictions by sending his own son Jesus to die for us and wash us and buy us back and change our hearts and make us new... (sighs) You know, the gospel has reconciled us to God. It's the ultimate marriage reconciliation story. So that now we are the bride of Christ without spot or blemish because of what he's done. And so we hold out hope in the most incredible of circumstances. Even when it's a terrible situation where where people have to divorce almost. Or, or, or it seems like people have to live separately and, it's, and, and there's no hope. Or, or you're divorced and, and you're supposed to be hoping for the reconciliation with your spouse. And you're like, that's ridiculous. It's not ever, ever, ever going to happen. There still should be a part of us that's saying, but God, I believe and hope that you will do it. Not just I believe it, but I'm praying, God, for you to work a miracle for the sake of the gospel. To show that you are the God who reconciles people. Have you ever been reconciled to God through Christ? Are, are, you, are you still far from God? Or are you drawing close to him? Wherever you're at this morning, 
whether you're married or single or whatever, whatever your story is, press into Christ, press into God, press into his love that was shed for us on the cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we tremble this morning at your word. Lord, we tremble because we realize how, how lofty it is and how lofty marriage is. Lord, we tremble because we see how far short we fall. But Lord, thank you for your word because we need truth. We need to know what you say. We've been listening to what the world says and it just has totally messed us up. So Lord, help us to listen to you. God, I pray for married couples here that you would bring them closer to one another, whatever that means, Lord, wherever they're at in their relationship. Oh God, would you bring even just an inch or an ounce of restoration? Would you turn the hearts of wives toward their husbands and turn the hearts of husbands toward their wives? Oh Lord, uh, we pray for those who are divorced and who have gone through that. Lord, I pray for those who have very graciously sat through a difficult message. And I pray, God, that you would just comfort them and that they would draw close to you. Lord, I pray that they wouldn't waste their divorce, but that they would cry to you and look to you, Lord, and find a new life in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Thank you that you restore. Lord, I pray for those who are remarried, for whatever the story is that led them to that point, God, I just pray that they would devote themselves anew to you and to their marriage and that, God, that, that you would use them. And, Lord, I pray that, that those uh, who are remarried, who have been flippant about remarriage, that they would repent. And I pray, Lord, for those who are guilt-ridden about their remarriages, that they would know your forgiveness and be free to serve you. And, Lord, all of us, wherever we're at in life, I pray that we would be so overwhelmed by the gospel that it would affect radically the way we view all of our relationships, that it would make us the people of hope, a people of prayer, a people who would try yet again because we believe that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. In Jesus' name, amen.